podcast. Always be cool. The show where your host, DZ and BK, showcase your local business and real estate pros going gangbusters in leadership, community involvement, and just being cool. Here are your hosts, serial entrepreneurs, mortgage experts at Summit Lending, and partners in crime, Darren Copeland and Bobby Kerr. All right, everybody, it's the Always Be Cool podcast, hanging out with your hosts, Bobby Kerr, Darren Copeland. What's up, everybody? We've got a really special guest today, someone that DC is about to introduce, but right away, his name is Mr. Doug Glanville. All right, everyone, here we go. Born August 25th, 1970, grew up grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, graduated from School of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, first African-American Ivy League graduate to play in the major leagues. Drafted in the first round by the Chicago Cubs, number 12 overall in 1991. He's a former MLB outfielder from 1996 to 2004. He played for the Cubs, Phillies, and Texas Rangers. And in 1999, he was second in the majors with 204 hits and hitting 325. He's currently an analyst on ESPN for Baseball Tonight, and all, along with being on the Marquee Sports Network for the Cubs. He is an author, speaker, advocate, and co-host of podcasts as well with Jason Stark. He is an awesome guy. He is a man of many, many talents. Doug Glanville, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? All right. Yeah. All right. No, great to be here, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, and Doug, just to let you know, um, I think I could have went 30 minutes on the introduction, man. Like you, uh, A lot of cool stuff. A lot of awesome stuff, man. A lot of yeah, awesome stuff. A lot of, yeah, a lot of jobs, man. I, I you know I put on hats and then take another hat off, and uh, and it's funny because you know being this is ABC podcast, you know I can't say I was cool. It took a it was like a delayed cool in my life. <laughs> right. You know I was the, Us too. You know, the guy taking honors physics and stuff. <laughs> so, sure, right. sure. Well, just to clarify, like it took us a while to get cool too. But the cool part is basically live by the golden rule. Like always do the right thing. Always be cool. Always treat people with respect. And so we thought that was a pretty fitting name for the show where uh, other people are doing the same thing. That sounds great, man. Absolutely. So, so Doug, let's kind of start like in, in the very beginning, you know, your your journey with baseball, you know, your you're growing up in Teaneck, New Jersey, and you started receiving your first lessons from your brother, Ken. Is that kind of where your love for baseball kind of started as a child? Yeah, absolutely. My, my brother was, you know, the first coach. I mean, I think the, you know, part of it was my dad uh, was older when he had me. He was in his like mid forties. Of course, I've had kids in forties, so I don't know, <laughs> but, I, but I get it, yeah. you know, the, and yeah. physically, you know, he, I remember he was always in traction. He was, had some neck issues and clearly the sports world for him was starting to diminish. But then I have this older brother, seven years older and, and, you know, he took a, a love of baseball early on. And as soon as I could walk, he put a bat in my hands and, you know, he had, and he had a, a grand plan. He put it on a, it was like a score sheet, uh score sheet book. And it had, you know, you're going to play wiffle ball, then stick ball, then, <laughs> you know, you play stratomatic. And so he yes. had a whole thing mapped out. Of, of where I was going to, to go and the big leagues was at the bottom of it. So, uh, he, he started that, um, that, that tradition in our family with the love of baseball. And, you know, my dad being from Trinidad and Tobago, he came to the United States when he was 31 years old. So I guess he had some connection because he was, he played cricket. He loved cricket. Yeah. And yeah. so there was a, a natural connection to kind of go look into baseball, but my brother carried that torch and, to this day, you know, I talk 
tell my brother all the time about baseball and and uh whenever we play the summer league games we'd come home and just do like play by play on what happened <laughs> yeah. so that may be our early broadcast days but definitely That's started awesome. uh started at home that's cool so you said that your brother actually kind of had this this grand plan for you like where he would write things out and write goals and at the bottom of that list actually said make it to the bigs yeah major league baseball it had um it had all the list and i probably need to find that score sheet but the um the list was very comprehensive and you know and i'm not a big goal setter you know like okay here's what i'm gonna do when i'm 21 i'm and it, it was helpful for Someone I, you know, certainly looked up to and tried to aspire to catch up to. He had this plan laid out and a lot of it was fun. So, you know, I'm the younger brother. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, let's go. Wiffle ball in the snow. Let's do it. Yeah, so, yeah. uh, so yeah, absolutely. He was, he was visionary in that regard. And, uh, and he's still playing. My brother's, uh, almost 60 years old and he still plays in these over 40 leagues. And yes. does he really? He's into it still. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, actually, I heard you say in a different interview something about the power of written goals. So it's interesting that your brother had done that so so early on. But there was something where you were talking about uh, Sheho Otani, um, Otani that that mm-hmm. his goals are so so specific. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. right? I, do you remember talking about that before? Yeah, I mean, I, I was so blown away when. They, uh, they, t- I guess it was some, I don't know if ESPN.com or where it was, but there was a list, uh, that he had about all of his goals in his life. And yeah, it was very specific. It was like married, first kid, MVP, perfect game, no hitter, world champ. I mean, it was just down yeah. to like, wow. I was like, wow, that guy's got it, you know, figured out. Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you, he's obviously one of the most transformational players we've seen oh. in the history of the game. So Hands it's hard down. to deny that. Hey, but, um, yeah. but yeah, the written word I have a great appreciation for because I do think it's different when you write it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was a good lesson for my brother about how powerful it is when you put the words to paper and it just becomes more of a pact, even if it's with yourself. You know, one of the 100%. things that we always like to talk about, Doug, is, you know, just the importance of, you know, kids growing up and having mentors, whether it's someone, you know, that's a relative or a coach or someone else that's uh, important in their life. But I mean, what a blessing for you to have an older brother because, you know, that seven year gap is almost a perfect gap because it's not like it's within one or two years and it's, you know, it's super competitive, mm-hmm. right? With a lot of other siblings. But man, to, to have your older brother to, to be there and have those written goals for you. I mean, like at family functions, Doug, does, does he ever remind you like, hey, man, I'm the one that kind of got you going? Does it give you like that friendly just reminder of, hey, I, I was there for you the whole time? Yeah, well, th- my brother is super humble and um, he he celebrated. You know, we were yeah. in some ways because we both loved the game. We kind of did it together. And uh, and my brother's the type of guy when way back in the day they had the scouting bureau. And the mm-hmm. scouting bureau used to have a schedule of tryouts all over the country. And, you know, it was like mail order and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, he snuck me in the Mets tryout one time. I was like 15 or something. That's cool. <laughs> I was just like standing, awesome. you know, standing in the bullpen. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, so he gave me a sense of drive for um, what was what was possible, really. And, um, and I, you know, always am grateful for all his contributions. It wasn't just, you know, coaching. It was a lot to do with with life and dedication, mm-hmm. competitive spirit. 
uh, and, and the X's and O's, quite frankly, because when the, the Stratomatic was on that list, yeah. I played this game as a kid because of him. And I started when I was like five or six. So I learned about making lineups up and why do I want a lefty and righty and, and just mm. started to understand the, the nuances of the game and the data of the game. So I love the numbers. And my brother used to keep stats. I think he still does. He would keep all his stats for everything, you know, from beginning and he would erase it and update it. So I learned early on to, you know, right after a little league game, I'd go home and be like, all right, two for four with a double, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I'd have right. my slugging percentage. And I mean, it was, it, you know, I learned a ton from him. In fact, one day he, I'm not sure it was a stolen base or a triple, but he's playing, you know, my brother plays everywhere. He's like in the North Carolina hills. He's playing a league where there's like three people in the stands and they're all the wives of the players or whatever. So, you <laughs> yes. know, nobody, so it's like some over 40 league and he, I think he steals third and when he gets to third, he like puts the base over his head like Ricky Henderson. And he's like, yes. And like, you know, there's like one person clapping. And they're like, what are you clapping for? He's like, well, that was my 900 stolen base. You know? Oh my gosh. And so, you know, he had tracked all his stuff. That's awesome. He's probably got the like the spiral notebook and three rig binder of all the stats. Yes. Yeah. That's great. You know, it's funny. Number one, that's like the fourth podcast episode we've done where Ricky Henderson comes up. Yes. Um, it's Number true. two, you know, with somebody else we were talking to, uh, it reminds me of your brother's story holding that that 900th stolen base above <laughs> his head. That was your brother's like own personal World Series, right? Yeah. And so for his adult baseball career, that meant a great deal for him and he wanted to accomplish goals. So whether he was writing down how many stolen bases he wanted every summer in his adult league, like that was – it's important for him to accomplish those goals. So that's a really cool story. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, so Doug, growing up, Growing up, man, obviously you're very, very intelligent. Uh, something that Bobby and I can really relate to, like trying to get into <laughs> Ivy League schools. Right. Maybe, okay, no, not so much. No. But uh, so you were one of only five uh, Penn alumni to ever play in Major League Baseball, man. So how did that come about? You go into an Ivy League school and being able to be one of those five members of the Penn baseball team to make it to the majors. I have to start with my parents, uh, without a doubt. You know, background, as I mentioned, my dad came from Trinidad and Tobago. He was already a teacher in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. And yet he, mm -hmm. he tried to transfer his sort of credits and ended up at Howard University on a scholarship. And he had to start over as a freshman at 31. But he mm, finished in wow. three years and then went on to med school. And, you know, really kind of self-taught in many ways. And he was he was a teacher in Trinidad when he was 14. So he was true renaissance. Whoa. He he was uh mm. one one fun note of him is he was ambidextrous as my brother is. And I could do some things lefty, but my brother's a switch hitter. He would um when he was teaching, he would stand at the chalkboard and he'd start with his left hand and then finish with his right hand. He wouldn't like have to continue with one side. He could actually switch hands. Wow. Yeah. So you know, he was incredible and and I think um coming from that spirit, the 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 value of education, the the power of academics and then my mom, who grew up in the South, in North Carolina, talking like, you know, Jim Crow South. And she had parents where her dad was, you know, they had a farmer and they eventually owned their own farm and owned a, a service station later as they transferred that and in the footsteps of their her grandfather. And she had three siblings and both her parents were just like, they knew that education was a difference maker. So she ended up going to Hampton University and then worked in the summer to save money to pay for not only herself, but her, her sister and her brother who also went to Hampton and her younger brother eventually went to Howard. So they, 
they were very committed to academics. So I think from the time I, I knew that there was a possibility I could play baseball in college, it was already set in stone and, and certainly in my mind that, you know, I wanted to go to a school that was strong academically and that that was still the priority. Because even mm-hmm. if I had this great career, I, I didn't know what was next. You know, you retire, I retired at 35 or whatever it was. And now you're like, now what? So I don't care if you're sitting on a mountain of money, you know, there's things you want to do and life is still coming out to your kids and all these things. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be sure that I had some options and, and I understood that there was other passions in life beyond baseball. And, uh, and so they gave me that, they gave me that, that focus. And so when I came down to, okay, where am I going? I liked the Ivy Leagues. I did some summer programs at Princeton and I liked the fact that there wasn't a huge schedule. It was 40 games. It's a little fall ball, but the priority was getting your degree. And we had good teams. We won the division two years in a row. We three years in a row went to the tournament. But at the same time, I was able to get my engineering degree. And, uh, and it was tricky because when I got drafted, I was like, I wasn't finished yet. So I had to convince the Cubs and everybody said, look, I'm going back in the fall to make sure I graduate. Mm. And uh, eventually they were like, yeah, you know, they, they were like, they knew I wasn't going to, you know, <laughs> stop on that. So I was like, all right, as long as I can graduate, that that's cool. So definitely my parents set that tone and, you know, I'm glad I made that choice. It was, um, it helped me so much in the transition from my career to my post career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, God willing, I'll be having a longer post career than, than a career. <laughs> right. Well, let's keep talking about that because I've heard you and I've read some things that you've said about the deep importance of diversification and the importance of having more than one love and whether it's, per, per, you know, your professor, your professional jobs or your, your hobbies, that diversification is so important. And you said that it gave you options in life, right? Making sure that you're focusing on the degree and not just baseball. So maybe stay in that arena a little bit and talk about diversification, how important it is to a person's success. Yeah, certainly starting at home for me, it was um, the the sense of being well-rounded was always there and the balance. And although I have a great appreciation for someone who's singularly focused and, you know, becomes the greatest, you know, cellist in the world. And I, and mm-hmm. I understand that there are periods of time, even in my career, where you had to be more singular. Uh, I remember playing about 500 games over two years between spring training, winter ball, postseason, mm-hmm. regular season, back to the winter ball. You know, I, you know, so I, I do know that there's times, but I also understood or f- believe strongly that, you know, it's important to expose yourself to a lot of different options and avenues and and be open-minded to the possibilities, especially in something as finite as professional sports. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, and I look at kids today, I have four kids and, you know, you're trying to like, oh, we'll play baseball, but there's like travel club and alternate uniforms. And, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's hard to just casually engage and just find the love and play with all different skill sets and skill levels and learn that empathy that, okay, this guy might have been picked last for the kickball team, but it's important how we figure out how this player can be a good teammate. Like the fact mm-hmm. that everybody feels like they have to always play at this like elite level, the elite level of the highest one that they're at all the time is, is really tough. And, and, uh, and the fact that there, where's the break? The fall, you're playing in the spring, you're playing in the winter, you're playing in the spring, in the summer, mm-hmm. and it's just one sport. And I always love like, okay, yeah, I'm playing Stratomatic now, but I'm also playing soccer and basketball and, 
just opening up to different things to, um, in some cases, people get burned out when they're that focused when they're 10. And so, mm-hmm. so I do think it, that translates to life itself, just being able to be uh, open to a lot of things and try different things. And, and I think that's helped me a lot in not only, you know, when I retired to when I found the next chapter, uh, I, you know, being open to it and not thinking that, oh, this is all I could ever be, ever do. Mm-hmm. Cause when you have that feeling about yourself, then yeah, I get why steroids happens and all these things happen because you, you there's a sheer desperation, mm-hmm. uh, where you're running mm-hmm. so fast from defining yourself in any other way than, than a ball player. And I think when anybody's backed into that kind of corner, you, you know, you take desperate measures to sustain it and keep it going. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as baseball lovers ourselves, I mean, you can see, you know, it's not an excuse, you know, some people doing the steroids or not, but you've been pretty, you know, outspoken about the, the use of steroids, you know, you were going through that era. So what, what was that like going through? And obviously we don't want to name any names, but what was that like going through that era of maybe seeing some other people getting back quicker or building their bodies up and, and staying in the majors using the steroids? What was, what was that like to see firsthand? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was tough. I think part of it was, well, I got to play ball here. I got to, you know, I can sit there and complain and fight and all these things. But in the end, your career is like this big. The window is small. And I have to take advantage of it by focusing on what I have to do. And, and the fact that this guy's throwing 100 miles an hour at 40 years old, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, what am I going to do? I got to still hit this guy, right? I mean, right. And, and I'm trying to beat out guys for center field or different positions. And I know that there's some competitive advantages that they're leaning into. So there, there was a lot of frustration. But at the same time, I also knew that, you know, I couldn't, couldn't get caught up in what choices they were making. To the point where I wasn't, you know, executing what I needed to do. And sure. although the playing field was tilted, it was, you know, I did the best that I could. And I didn't know when I retired, I was like, well, you know, I, I had an authentic career. This is the best I could do. And, and I know sometimes people look at the numbers like, oh, this guy versus that guy. It's like, well, you know, is that really a fair comparison when someone, right. you know, uh, you know, took sure. steroids and, but, um, so, but I, it's evolved over time how I've come to understand it. And I do know that these environments sometimes support it or, you know, encourage it or, and, you know, those are stronger words, but also just it's part of a hyper competitive environment where people are going to do everything to find an edge. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, that's not shocking. And, and let alone the desperation of holding on to your job or you get hurt and you're trying to come back, all those Mm -hmm. things that, make you more susceptible to cutting corners. But I always go back to my dad and Trinidadian phrase, shortcuts lead to long cuts, you know? So <laughs> that's good. So, I love that. So, that's uh, good. I'm writing that down. Uh, I, I, always, I love that. That, yeah. that might be right up there with our, our other buddy, Sean Casey, who is on the MLB, MLB network. Right. And uh, he has a great saying that it's, it's okay to suck, but it's not okay to skip. Yep. Right. Yeah. So you yeah. might have an off day or, you know, game or workout or a day in business that you not might not be at the top of your game, but just don't skip by doing the right things. Right. Right. And I think, yeah. and you know, you've been super blessed. We, we talk about 
elevator people and basement people. You know, <laughs> we talk about elevator people that, you know, are lifting you up and always helping you go to the next level and basement people who are trying, some of those people try to hold you back or, you know, put doubt in your mind. And, you know, you've been in an amazing spot. You know, you've had awesome parents, an awesome older brother, but as you, you know, let's, you got drafted, you go to the minor leagues. Was there anyone else along that path during the minor leagues that was kind of a mentor for you as you were making your way up? Well, uh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, my parents, and it certainly started there uh, and, you know, sustains. Uh, so my, my mom is 85, thankfully still still with us. I lost my dad about 20 years ago. But um, those lessons echo even when they're not here. Mm-hmm. But um, But along the way, a lot of it was coaching. You know, you think about coaches and, uh, you know, I always think of Gene O'Reilly. He's a coach for summer ball, uh, played for the quote Teaneck Lancers. I was like a prestigious <laughs> team to play locally and my brother played. So when I got a chance, I was like, this is amazing. I'm on the Lancers. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think of a lot of coaches. I think of, you know, along the way, whether Tom Gamboa was my coach in Puerto Rico and winter ball. And, you know, the lessons that stuck from some of the coaches wasn't just about baseball or, how to play center field or steal a base. A lot of it was just the, the commitment and, and the professionalism that's required and all those little elements. Like when I played in Puerto Rico in winter ball, that was, that was game changing for me because it was beyond, yes, I had a chance to compete against some great players and performing well bumped up my stock as a pro, but it was also just going to a place where I felt validated and, you know, the fans in Puerto Rico, they supported me. You know, things like that, that you realize, okay, this is how I create an environment where I can have the best chance at success. And I learned a lot of that from coaches along the way and different mentors uh, that that helped me. And some, unfortunately, when I got married in Asheville, my wife and, uh, you know, some of them showed up and they gave speeches at the, we had a barbecue uh, for our rehearsal dinner at the baseball field, the, the A-ball park in McCormick Field. Nice. And um and so Lenny spoke, Vukan Vucic, you know, my professors in engineering in college. Wow. So all along the way, there were just touch points and often people that directly lend a helping hand. And, um, you know, very quickly, you know, you can't do it alone. I, I like what you said. You said lessons echo um, because we've all got people from our past where they things that they've said or that they've done and that we've watched have resonated, right? And it is it's a lesson that just continues to echo in the back of our mind or our hearts. Um, I, I've heard you say that, you know, talking about the the PED kind of era of baseball, that uh, the the thoughts of your mother is what really kind of kept you, you know, on the straight and narrow and kept you from um, <laughs> choosing between the red and blue pills, right? In the matrix, <laughs> I've heard you say, right? Which, which direction are you going to go? But those lessons from your mom is what echoed in your mind to make sure that you were kind of always doing the the thing full of integrity. It was important. I, I mean, I, I, it was important to finish your career, play the best you can, know you gave an honest effort and not look back at that. You know, it's, I mean, and there, you know, just like with Sean Casey, there's days, you know, I was bad, right? Mm-hmm. But there was days I felt terrible and had four hits. You know, I just, I don't know what, you know, challenges you could rise up to. And I think that each time you, face those organically, I felt like that was just strengthening me, you know, because, you know, I can be good even when I'm not at my best. I can, you know, figure out how to be a good teammate in in circumstances that surprise you and all those things. I wanted those lessons to reach me unfiltered 
and not do this layer of sort of shortcuts or these layers of, well, is it me who's hitting the ball or is that me on steroids or is it, mm-hmm. you know, so it was an easy choice for me. And I think, you know, to not go down that road. And I know that that there's a privilege in why that was easy. I didn't, you know, I had parents that were super supportive and that was a point of emphasis. I watched, I had a great example in my brother. I, uh, I had options because I was able to go to a, really good college and come out of it with a degree that I felt like, oh, there are other kind of professions and I don't have to put all these eggs in this one basket. You know, I could go out, go for it and do the yeah. best. And then when it's over, I can feel like I have this kind of future. I mean, all those things were certainly privileges and advantages. Uh, and that's why I have some empathy. You know, when you see players grow up in uh, the Dominican Republic and, you know, some of my teammates and not have running water and their father's working in the sugarcane field and their, their career is leveling out in double A. I mean, you could, you know, that gives you a little more understanding of, okay, I can see how someone can feel a certain pressure to do mm-hmm. whatever it takes. I think mm-hmm. empathy is still important. It's not, it wasn't just about greed and money and breaking records, although that was yeah, part of good it. Good point. It's a great it was point. also about insecurity fear uh, of what's next and and sometimes just straight up exploitation you know young kids getting exposed to these drugs when they're 16 15 14 and and someone who's taking advantage of them so there there's part of it and mm-hmm. and so every despite you know my strong stance on like yeah this wasn't right it's important in anything to still have some em- have an empathetic mm-hmm. ear because the lessons are in there, right? The lessons for all of us are in there. Because as soon as you think you're invincible, I would never do that. I'm above mm-hmm. that. As soon as you get in that mindset, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because mm-hmm. that's when you're you're going to fall because you're not open oh. to the lessons. And the lessons what? aren't uh, are just for you. They're for everyone. That That's an absolute gold nugget. It man, is. Because the empathy of, you know, thinking some of these guys coming from the Dominican – Puerto Rico, you know, other countries that they're coming from probably a long line of poverty, right? So they don't have, you know, degrees to fall back on and some of the other family systems to fall back on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you could absolutely understand, see where they're coming from. As you said, when they're plateauing at double A or somewhere in the lower minors, man, that's a whole different ballgame because it's it's kind of either make it or break it for them and also several members of their family. Yeah, well, imagine if you're – you know, you're a you're a Dominican player, um, or a, a person from Latin America, and your family legit might have had a concrete structure for a home, mm-hmm. maybe, right? Um, and are you really that concerned at that point? Let me back up. A lot of people, the conversation is, well, how could they tarnish a legacy by doing something like that? Mm-hmm. Well, if that's your background and if that's where you're coming from. Is legacy on your mind or is survival and longevity on your mind, right? And so I think that's why that's an interesting perspective, and I'm glad you brought it up because it is easy for us to play armchair quarterback, especially for us, and say, oh, it's not the right thing to do. But if that's your background coming mm. from, are you more concerned about setting up your family for generations right. right, to get paid, or are you concerned with, oh – the legacy of baseball is going to consider me in a different kind of light. So that's a really interesting nugget. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Absolutely. And and I think we saw even players that may not even been from that circumstance still throw legacy away. You know, that's correct. um, Because there is, that's the other side. And sometimes there's, you know, a a selfishness to that. But, um, but yeah, when you play long enough and you see 
players from so many different backgrounds, you do have a different understanding. I think even when I wrote some of my very strong stated opinion pieces about steroids or the Hall of Fame or Bonds and all these figures, when I've, mm-hmm. you know, when I've written about it, they were, it was hard. It was hard to write because not just because, oh, uh, you know, people are going to, I'm going to get in trouble or something like that. But I, I'm still thinking through, uh, the choices and, and sort of being in that environment and thinking of the, uh, you know, case by case components of what goes into that. Um, sure. Of course, as a player, it affects me in the playing field and, and all these elements, but I think it's still important to understand as much as you can on how these choices come about. And, and, and then from there, you can try to create, you know, stronger policies, try to make a, a difference that way, you know, make sure that you have support systems for these players that are, you know, 16 and coming out of a place where they don't have a lot of support. Mm-hmm. And then they're, you know, they're influenced by people who are, have their own agendas and don't care about their health or their well-being. They just want the, the immediate gratification. And, uh, and that's, that exists as well. So, um, but yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, we've made a lot of strides in, in addressing PEDs and, and, sure. but, you know, it's something you always have to be vigilant because there's always some new flavor of the week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And no matter what decades, you know, throughout baseball, there's always, there's always something, right? That people were trying to use to get an edge. Oh, sure. You know, way back in the day, what, whatever that, uh, you know, whether it's substance or anything like that. So, you know, that kind of transitions us to, you know, having some teammates and other guys that might be in the clubhouse that are looking out for you. And, and in the past, you have mentioned that both uh, Sean Dunstan and Gary Maddox uh, looked out for you in the past. Can you kind of can uh, co- collaborate, expand on that? Yeah, no question. The mentorship is such a big part of baseball, you know, of passing anything. down yeah. Of, yeah, of anything. And, and baseball has this natural connection to it because you're playing every day, you know, you're in a small group, you're traveling together and there's a lot of old school traditions. You call them unwritten rules, whatever you want to call them. But the idea that you're passing down things that aren't necessarily like written in stone, but just cultural understandings, um, sportsmanship, respect, all these things that you learn, not just from, you know, playing how to, you know, know that there's three outs in a, in a half an inning or something, but because you are, are understanding like how to play the game from some of the experienced players that have been out there. Sean Dunstan was one of those figures that often pulled me aside and talked me through a lot of things, just the dynamics that of just being a pro. I remember watching him have back surgery, come back, pop up to second in spring training. And I'm too busy. I'm looking at the ball up in the sky and look down and Sean Dunstan's at second base. I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know? So I was like, there was just no excuse after that, after that point that you right. need to hustle. Mm-hmm. You need to play yeah. hard and hustle. So that was big to see. And, and along the way, various mentors, um, you know, definitely touched me to give me that sense. And I, you know, I just remember going to spring training and Chuck Mark, my, one of my first spring trainings in the big league roster, Chuck McElroy, these guys were like, Oh no, you can sleep on the couch. You know, don't even pay us for rent. You know, they just, people looked out for you. And then when it happens that you become the veteran, Mm-hmm. You pass it on to the next. And I remember talking to Chase Utley and, um, and Chase Utley was like, Utley. I think he got sent down, uh, just like I did one year in 95 or 96 back to triple A. And Mike Morgan pulled me aside and said, Hey, if you do what you have been doing up here in the triple A, triple A, you'll be right back here. Just keep working hard. And when Chase got sent down once, I said the same thing to him. 
just saying, hey, this is, you know, I'm old man now. So, you know, <laughs> I'm the I'm the 25th guy on the roster. So just come take my position. You know, it's fine. Just work hard. You will get here. Uh, but you just got to go down with a positive attitude and come back. And um, so it was, it's always nice to see that you, you care about the game and you want to preserve it. And mm-hmm. so you pass it on through through mentorship. Sure. Uh, and it's a, it's a continuum. Well, staying there and talking about being a teammate and talking about the different types of players, the different backgrounds and helping one another, um, you wrote a book called The Game From Where I Stand. And um, several, basically about how players – you know, can deal and cope with normal everyday, you know, every person situations, anxieties, disagreements, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, coaches, different leaders, family issues. So maybe let's talk a little bit about how these types of things do affect, you know, major league baseball players, just like they affect everybody else and why you kind of put it on your shoulders to bring some things to light and how it's positively impacted not only the game, um, but people that you've known in your circle and outside of baseball. Yeah, well, the first connection I've made is baseball, because it's something I've done since I could walk. There's an element of that that is is sort of my worldview. You know, my worldview flows through my experience, certainly growing up in a town like Teaneck that was diverse and exposed to many different types of people. That was always a beautiful thing. But sports brought that together, brought it to light in very powerful ways. Because just like, you know, I would go to spring training every year and see people from all over the world and we'd have to figure out how to be a team. And Mm -hmm. and a lot of the preconceived notions, the perceptions, all these things that uh, are kind of meaningless in the end when you actually have evidence, when you're with somebody and you say, oh, okay, I do have a better understanding of of my biases now that I've, you know, been exposed to people from this background and now I understand. And when you're doing that in, a, in an environment where you're, you have a common goal, you're trying to win together and it's set up, the, you know, the structure of sport or, or just baseball specifically is that you have to have rules to uphold and they have to be distributed, applied fairly. And that sense of fairness is important, not only to the game's integrity, but because it sets another example of what larger society can aspire to have, right? You have laws, you have all these ways that when they're applied fairly, then you have a fair society. And and sports always gave me that sense of this is so much bigger than just baseball or this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to play with different people and come together on something that's bigger than just identity or your, the box that you get checked or whatever, but that you, you can – you can oversee things. You can transcend things because you care about this outcome and you want to do it together and you have to do it together. Mm-hmm. And and also the fact that the game only exists and maintains itself when you actually have rules that are consistent and fair and applied. You can't have somebody shooting into a basketball hoop the size of the Atlantic Ocean and then the other side is the size of a post-it stamp and call that fair. People who would be on either team First of all, the ocean, the people shooting into the ocean may, if all they care about is winning, that's one thing, but do they feel like they've achieved anything when someone is playing, you know, with such a disadvantage? Mm-hmm. So I think even as a strong competitor, you want to beat someone fair and square. You want to beat them knowing that you, they gave your best you, and you just, you know, whatever extra you had that day that, that allowed you to prevail and that you live to fight another day and they will too. And, uh, and that's what I love about how sports is a microcosm or a proxy for uh, not only larger society, but w- what we could aspire 
to reach mm-hmm. a larger society. So, Absolutely. so staying there with the book, um, you know, I think you've, you've talked about the different situations that players get in, right. The different situations that are challenged to players during their career, um, whether it's financial or whether it's, um, I've heard you talk about the growing number of divorce or financial ruin or drug abuse or alcohol abuse by players today. Is there a theme? Is there a cause? Is there a, a way to educate and improve? You're obviously very, very um, big about education, not, not not necessarily just formal, but um, just lifting people up to to make them smarter in their situation. So kind of maybe speak to the, the grandiose macro look at baseball in particular with these themes that we're seeing. Well, and also have the teams over time over the past 20, 30 mm-hmm. years, Doug, have the teams made more of a focused effort realizing that there's an issue with these? Have they done a better job bringing in, you know, guys like the Doug Glanvilles of the world to come yeah, and speak to question. these young kids about those pitfalls? Yeah, well, there's no no question that a lot of this goes back to that point of transition. You know, when you're leaving the game, and your identity is very much woven into it, no matter what mm-hmm. options you have. It, it's a it's a very hard time, and when when you're going through that, and you're going through that as a spouse, as a father, all the uh, elements, you know, this is where a lot of times things can go off the rails, so to speak. You know, you have, you know, you have a situation where now, you know, you've been gone all this time. Let's say you played 15 years, and now you're home. And you're trying to figure out how to adapt to this new world where there's not this competitive element every day. And all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. your kid is waking you up at two in the morning and you're like, what? You know, you know it's like all the things that you were, you know, gone. <laughs> you were absentee in many ways, at least certainly during the bulk of this eight month season, basically. So I think that creates a lot of stressors. And I remember a long time ago, um, an advocate. I believe for um, a lot of player wives was talking about these numbers and in sports, the divorce rate was very high, higher than already what is high in society, but also so much of it was concentrated shortly after an athlete retired. And I don't know what the numbers are now, but I know that that transition is always still hard, no matter how much money you've made, no matter, you know, it's just a, it's a new relationship, not only with the people around you, but with Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And how you define yourself. So I was fortunate because I found something. You know, I I had other passions and I love writing. I found my moment with the steroid story with the Mitchell Report. Mm-hmm. And I was able to parlay that into, you know, other things and and find a new passion, a new love. And I got married uh, post-career shortly after, maybe like a year and a half after I retired. Mm. So, you know, I built my sort of family life after my career was over. I don't know if it was a conscious effort, maybe a subconscious effort, but I knew that relationships, uh, you know, were really tough um, during the season and playing days. And, you know, as you know, my father got sick in 2000 and he had a major heart attack, stroke, all these things started to plague him. And it was really hard to just deal with that for three years of, of just feeling guilty in a way and and all the ways he was suffering and getting calls from the ER and trying to help my mom support my dad and help my mom just support her. Uh, so much was on her to just keep my dad alive, let alone just try to go day to day. And he did pass away uh, eventually in 2002 on the last game of the season. And I think, 
you know, that was three years of my career and my life that it was just like a blur. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine, even in those scenarios, how challenging my relationships around that were because of the fact that we're all trying to figure out this crisis. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, all these players are dealing with this all the time. And, you know, so I think, as you mentioned, sometimes the way people turn to things or don't find positive outlets to, to deal with that. Yeah. You can go down a very dark path. Are, are to, to DC's question are, is the league or, um, our individual teams, do you see them trying to shed light on these types of situations in order to educate and set them up for set up players for success in the future? Yeah. I, th- I think the challenge with it, and I've spent a lot of years with the players, the alumni association, MLB mm-hmm. PAA, and we have a player welfare group and I've done various things over the years, but for the most part, I, I found when I was serving on the actual board, it was hard to figure out who was going to be responsible, right? Is it the players association? Is it the players alumni association? Mm. Is it the teams? Is it the league? Is it, is it the individual? I, I always felt like that kind of constant merry-go-round of like, how do we partner on this? has always made it a little tricky to come up with something that sustains and interesting, you know, and so there are programs, MLB PA, the alumni, you know, have MLB clubhouse and they try to support their life skills and transitional services to help. So there's some of that and definitely much more than it used to be. But, um, but as you know, I think there's still more out there to be done and there's no question that players are, you know, giving you many examples every every year mm-hmm. when tens of them retire and are trying to figure out what's next. That that need will never go away. Yeah. Well, it, the one thing that um, I wanted to touch on, we want to go back to your baseball just for a second, and then we want to dive into your current passions of what you're into right now, Doug. So um, take us back. Um, so this was a special time for the Cubs, right? You know, we're coming up on 20 years ago. It was in the 11th inning of Game 3. It's a 2003 National Championship Series, and you hit a game-winning triple for the Cubs, which at that time, you know, obviously they hadn't won the World Series and was it 2016 at the time. But, man, how did that feel to hit a game-winning triple, and uh, how, how did your teammates react to that? That was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. And I think part of it was because of the, the journey to get there. Because uh, that season, 2003, I signed with Texas as a free agent. Okay. And I got hurt within the first two weeks of the season and took me two months of rehab. And it was one of those moments like, you know, a hamstring injury. I don't know. This might be it. Because I was getting to be an old man. I was 33, 32, 33. And, um, and so I came back. I was able to come back. And that in and of itself was an accomplishment just mm-hmm. to get back on the field. Right. And and then I thought about how that previous offseason I lost my father. And and so a lot of stuff was going on in life that were really the true hurdles to getting back to normal, getting back to some semblance of of like accomplishment as a ball player. And so I always remember these questions when, you know, I'm I'm in media now, so if someone says they get a big hit, it's like, Oh, is that the biggest hit of your career? <laughs> and because it's on the stage and it makes sense, there's seventy thousand fans, it's game three of the playoffs. Yes, it makes a lot of sense that that's a big hit, but but what made that big wasn't just because of the audience, but it was because mm-hmm. of what I had overcome personally, 
in, in relationships wise to get there, to just be on the field with something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because I knew, I knew that moment when I tore my hamstring tendon, I was like, I don't know, this could be it. You know, I don't know. I just had no clue how I'd come back from that. Sure. So, um, so I always use that experience to be humble about when I'm asking someone a question about, is that the biggest hit of your life? To give them room to explain that the biggest hit might have been, you know, Trey Mancini coming back from cancer. You know, it's not, it's not because it's game seven of the World Series. It could be just your own personal walk mm-hmm. of, of things that you overcome on this a personal level. Yep. Yeah. You're talking about hurdles, right? Your own personal walk. Um, have you ever had any detractors in your life and your career that basically made you say, there's no way I'm, I'm letting this person get to me. I'm, I'm going to accomplish my goals. Um, because we're very, very, in fact, what we do for our, our company, um, is we make sure that we survey every single client we have, right? Whether it was, whether we think it was going to be a positive experience or whether something went a little sideways, we always want to know ways to improve, ways to improve, right? So in our personal life, our professional life, did you have any detractors? And if so, how was it that that helped you kind of set yourself up for more success in the future to make sure you turned it into a positive? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I, and I think it's no way you can make it through this world without a whole lot of detractors. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. it, and uh, I, I definitely had detractors. I mean, any in sports and baseball, there's always someone that can say, well, you know, you're not a good outfielder or you're not a good base runner. There's so sure. many facets of the game, which is what mm-hmm. I love about baseball, right? You, The fact that you have to learn so many elements, you know, you're playing offense and defense and you're doing. So um, there's, there's always room. Um, but, you know, I think my biggest detractor was, my manager in AAA for the Iowa Cubs. <laughs> mm. you know, is this he, Ron? Ron Clark. Yeah, yeah. he was. He was. Mm. Um, he was rough on me, and I probably that's probably an understatement. But um, but I do what I do appreciate as I got older later in life is that you do have to thank your detractors as well as your supporters. They Absolutely. are very much a part of of how you are able to do what you do. I think in the case of detractors, it could be a moment where you. You're tested. Where do you stand on this? Are are you willing to got to go through this wall for this? Are you willing to take the power away from someone who's trying to destroy you? Let's say or whatever it mm-hmm. may be. I think I think I needed to come to grips with what that meant, and and so you know, I don't I don't I would be a very different player if I didn't have Ron Clark, mm-hmm. and um and and so I have to with all humility you have to just be like that's part of it that was part of the road. And I remember Tom Gamboa, my manager in, in my, in Puerto Rico, in Mayaguez, he said, look, if you retired after AAA, after what you went through with Ron Clark, everybody would have said, okay, you know, we get it. Oh yeah, that was terrible. I, I fully understand. Like it, I would have had a very good story to tell to say why I didn't make it. Mm. He said, but, but then, you know, Tom would say, but then you're giving him all the power because. Right. It's it's more powerful to say, and despite that, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and um, so so I look back and you know, yeah, those lessons from Ron Clark were hard ones, and I'm not saying he did them out of the kindness of his heart because he loved me, <laughs> but they still had value, and um, and so I think I can't separate, you know, where you know my career without knowing that he or many others that may have said, you know, we don't believe you're going to be a hit right-handers. We don't believe you'll, mm-hmm. you're going to, whatever, you're going to hit enough power, whatever it is, all the things that are said. 
every player has that. And, um, and so, yeah, so they're important. And I think that I expect there'll be plenty more, uh, in my life, but I think it's, um, but there, fortunately, there's also people I can lean in and lean with that have my back. And, um, and that's important. Yeah, you know, that, that's such an awesome point, Doug, because, you know, we have the saying in our office and some of the businesses we have. And I, I tell some of our people who might have haters, because if you have any type of success, you're naturally going to have some type of haters out there, where it's family or friends or anything. But I kind of joke around with them and say, listen, you actually need to write them a thank you card. <laughs> because if you turn that, just like you did with Ron Clark, if you turn that into a positive and kind of use that as fuel for motivation that, hey, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to succeed that without some of those detractors and maybe questioning, you know, whether it's business or baseball, that you're actually going to make it to the next level. I think that people can just use that in a positive as that fire to take that next step, because just like you, I mean, you would have had a story, but it wouldn't been quite as good a story of, Hey, you know, I made it to AAA and that was really, really good, but I did make it because of this guy. No, you, you push and went further from that. And not only did you have an awesome major league career, you got game winning hit in the NLCS and all these other accomplishments, uh, accomplishments after baseball. Dude, that's amazing. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing. We call it, uh, what, what do we call our fans? Fans are either on the sidelines with uh, pom-poms or pepper spray. Yeah, that's actually – that's a combined quote between us and Les Norman. True story. We we always said we want to look, make sure who's who's holding pom-poms when you have your successes. And Les added to it, yeah, you want to make sure that they're not holding pepper spray. And so we love that one. Yeah, well, I always think of um, – Les can, can relate to this. I, I know we've talked at different times, but I know uh, we'd always notice like who – people we've known a long time and, and then there's people that show up when you're in Yankee Stadium and then there's people who show up when you're in Winston-Salem in low A ball. That's, yeah. that's a, it's the same thing. Yeah, that's good right. metaphor. That's, like, that's exactly right. That's good. So I got a, a quote for you, okay? Um, quote, the only game where there's a right way to play. Okay, that's a, that's a Chris Rock quote. Mm-hmm. So my yeah. question and topic for you is – Baseball is a is played differently in so many different parts of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And in the Dominican or Latin America countries, you've got this celebratory way that baseball is played, right? It's high energy. It's just a, it's kind of like a like a party and mm-hmm. it's celebrated. In parts of Asia, right? You've yeah, got Japan. I mean in Japan and Korea, you've got a certain way that that gosh, guys are doing backflips. Like literally, right? You're doing backflips, celebrating the game. And then in the United States, we have a, a very traditional buttoned-up way to play the game. How and why do you think that transitioned in so many different parts of the world? Is it is it simply just to easily say the culture? Right? The cultural mm-hmm. background is a different way, and so therefore in the United States, we're just trying to keep it reverent. So maybe just talk for a few minutes before we wrap up the show on how the game has evolved so differently in other parts of the world, but not necessarily in the United States. Yeah, I mean, and that's a that's a great point. I mean, I think it is cultural. Um, I think like anything else, you might start in, as the inventor of something and have a vision for it, but then you know you open it up to the world, and the world takes it and makes it its own. 
And I think that's a good thing. I think you, you know, have a, a way to express it and celebrate it in different ways. And, you know, think of like food. Okay. I make, you know, spaghetti. I take it to wherever else and it's noodles here and it's, you know, wherever right. you take it, you know, empanadas. I mean, how many countries have empanadas or forms of empanadas, right? Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And, so I think that's, that is cultural. You add your own flavor. It depends on what spices are available, temperature, what kind of water, uh, how you cook it, all these things. And I think baseball is no different. The fact that you have these elements and I played in Puerto Rico for two years and that changed everything for me, first of all, because I had this validation of support, but I also watched the game, like you said, be celebrated in a different way. Uh, eventually we had like a salsa band and we had, you know, I mean, so, I mean, it was just a blast and, and it, you know, helped me come out of my shell in some ways, even though I still played my style and, you know, I wasn't flipping bats or anything, but I, I just had a certain inspiration from being in Puerto Rico. And so, you know, so baseball in America, maybe being kind of the more original form of it, also has that reference point to look back and say, oh, this is how it started. And we kind of holding on to things in a certain way. And sometimes that's out of fear or out of whatever. But now the game with players, 30% of the players are from Latin America. And, you know, I think that's the, I think that's sort of the tragedy of the the Fernando Tatis Jr. story, because Mm. this, he was a guy up until this point was, the transformer in many ways. And like he mm-hmm. came on the scene. It was like, I I'd never seen a young player have so much of an impact on veteran players saying, Oh yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I, you know, I just never seen that, you know, and not only just on the field, but in the collective bargaining room, they're, they're negotiating for pre-arbitration money saying, Hey, these young guys are this good and they need to be paid. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Back in the nineties. And they'd be like, what? Nobody was looking out for the young guys. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no. You pay your yeah. dues. Yep. And, and like, and I'm not saying that's like wrong, but that's how it was. And I think, and it's not just Tatis Jr. There's a lot of incredible young players that are productive. So I do mm-hmm. think that the game was or has been slowly kind of, all right, let's try to like loosen up a little bit. And to get the younger generation to fans, you kind of have to if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Baseball is always skewed old, older. And look, I love the storytelling. And so, I mean, I, I'm in my element. But I do understand, like, to grow the game, to sustain the game, you need to still have some appeal. And the biggest appeal is 23-year-old Juan Soto's of the world yeah, out right, there exactly. just having fun and dancing and, you know, around the bases. I mean, so be it. So I, um, so I think that that's – it should be – if this is, quote, America's, you know, invention – and now it's representing all these countries coming together because you are saying you're the best in the world, then you should embrace the world. And, and really, and if you're going to do that, then you will have a very diverse set of, of ways you declare something, quote, the right way. You have a, mm-hmm. You'll have a way that's for all of us. And I think that just makes the game greater. Exactly. Well, and also, you know, having a great game, but uh, the younger generation, this is such an old statement from our, <laughs> from our perspective, but the attention span of the younger generation with the social medias sure. and everything like that, we got to keep them involved with baseball and keep it moving a little bit quicker. So they stay, you know, engaged and want to root for these guys like the Juan Soto's of the world. So um, also we, you know, we want to be very mindful of your time, but like if there's one good piece of advice that you could give our listeners, Doug, what would it be? What what would be something, you know, from the heart that you could give to advice of some of the people that are listening to today? 
Yeah, I don't know if I have that. Um, trying to think of the best sort of silver bullet advice. I mean, I, you know, I look at my life and, you know, and I look at today and I think what's, there's, there's some things that are heartening and that you're seeing uh, different people, different kinds of people, different walks of life, you know, find a voice in, in, in throughout society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. I, I, you know, I, if I live through what I believe is the best of, of baseball in my, or at least what I've learned from baseball, mm-hmm. it is this power of bringing people together, you know, what a team truly can be. I think that's the most enduring lesson that I appreciate the most. And probably what I enjoyed the most of the game was coming into a locker room <laughs> and, and watching, you know, Turk Wendell from, you know, wherever he's in Colorado, you know, right. connect to like Yorkies Perez and, and just, and look out for their kids. You know, when nine eleven happened, we were all in Atlanta and, you know, we were all feeling something and didn't matter where you were from. Didn't matter. We all kind of looked out for our families, our, each other's kids. And I just, I think when you have these moments and you have a lot of them in sports, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't hide that from seeing it as a possible way to be a great lesson for larger society. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I kind of, I'm a big rejector of stick to sports, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I completely like, you know, Dikembe Matumbo kind of feeling about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, because I'm just like, wait a minute, sports is a great opportunity to talk and share because you're living it every day. Yeah. You're playing with a guy next to you that grew up 10 years earlier than you and is from a completely different country. And, and yet you're like embracing because he got the game winning hit. I mean, that is a great lesson. Yeah. And it gives us so much more patience with people and understanding and really thinking about what actually matters. Is mm-hmm. it his skin color? Is it religion? Or is it the fact that I want to give you the ball in the ninth inning because I know you're going to get this guy out? And I don't care. Right. Yeah, and we're you pulling know, in I, the same direction. We're right. all going in the so, same direction. So to me, that is, to me, that's the great gift that I will always try to elevate. And as you know, I've written on a lot of subjects and sports has been my way in from mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick to Jim Cott to Tim Anderson's, you know, battle with mm-hmm. J- Josh Donaldson to yeah. George Floyd to whatever. I mean, sports has a voice in this that could actually help find the harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like my example, you know, let's talk about police briefly. You know, I, I grew up in Teaneck, as I mentioned, the volunteer, a volunteer detective police officer from Teaneck police was my summer league coach with the Teaneck Lancers. And his name is Gene O'Reilly. And his son, Glenn, is, the, by the way, the chief currently in, in Teaneck, but also was a teammate of mine. Well, there's five or six of those guys were went into law enforcement later. And mm-hmm. actually, Bobby Maynard, now I, I see him at least a couple times a year. He goes to games and we get together. Uh, so these police officers were my teammates. And, you know, and when my father got sick, uh, one example of how close they were, they always looked out for my mom. My mom, you know, my dad's gone. We're all out of the house. My mom's by herself. And Teaneck police were always popping in. And she was a teacher in the school system. So she, you know, they knew her and loved her. So they were always looking out. So at one day, my uh, dad had one of his episodes, had to call the ambulance. And on the radio, they were like, they were missing something they needed. And and one of the police officers like intercepted it and brought the device to the ambulance and brought, you know, like, and I was just from like, because we're teammates, right? Like we, Mm -hmm. so when my father passed away, Teaneck police shows up. In like all my friends and teammates and all, they show up in full uniform 
They come and, you know, pay their respects. They go outside. And I thought they were like on duty, so they had to go. And then when we come out to drive to the burial, there was a whole a police escort outside. And so oh, they escorted wow. us all, blocked off all the lanes of the highway so we could get off. You know, so so my point is that that's mm-hmm. also my experience with police. Yeah, a police officer stopped me in my driveway and asked me if I was shoveling for money. That did happen. However, the reason why I was optimistic on what I could do about that was because I had police officers in my life that looked out for my family and have our mm-hmm. brothers to this day, right? So, so like, just being open-minded to, like, it's you don't want to oversimplify people because of the uniform, their skin color, their faith, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've found too many examples in, in sports alone that completely blows that out of the water, completely, right? And uh, and I and I I would venture to say, if given the opportunity and the exposure and the intimacy, that would actually be true in anything, right? Right. <clears throat> but if we're in our silos and we don't mm-hmm. get the experience, then yeah, you just get you can just watch the same shows and reinforce the same ideas mm-hmm. without actually challenging it because everybody's telling you you're brilliant, everything you believe is right. Um, that's that's a problem, and sports deny that. <clears throat> sports deny that all the time because we're constantly saying we're we're constantly getting new evidence mm-hmm. to suggest that wait a minute the boxes we put people in are complete mythology right mm-hmm. um so i i would say like globally even though it's not a succinct say okay this is what i would share from a like a, a one line motto i think that that is what sports has given me the reason why i'm able to take on social justice questions and is because sports has informed me mm-hmm. all the way and, and and have given me all these examples um, to draw on. Well, right. and that's really like that's the perfect. underline of everything that we do. Like that's that's a perfect example, Doug, of always be cool, right? And having those experiences through sports, growing up, you know, your buddies that you grow with uh, through the police force. I mean. That just goes to show that you've met some really amazing people from all different walks of life uh, that gives you a whole different perspective on folks. Absolutely. The power of staying away from our silos, like you said, Mm -hmm. and embracing everyone, making sure that everyone is celebrated. Um, what a what a phenomenal theme to to wrap yes. this up, man. Doug, thank you so much, man. Thank you. For we being really appreciate your us. time. Yes. Um, we'll wrap up the show in here a second. If you wouldn't mind, just stay on the line for thirty extra seconds uh, when we stop recording, guys. This has been the always be. Actually, before we end, Doug, if somebody wants to kind of get in touch with you or mm. buy your book yes. or watch you mm-hmm. or nice. read you, what's the best way that everyone can get in touch with you? Yeah, well, it's pretty easy. I, I, I'm I'm all over the place. I'm on Twitter. I, I definitely tweet a lot. Uh, probably the best from an email standpoint, uh, you could just go to mail at com or go to the website com and find me there. But if you shoot a message on Twitter, even I, I respond to all, all the stuff. So you can definitely find me on all the social media channels as well. There you have it, folks. Awesome. All you got to do is email Doug Glanville. You got his <laughs> private email right there. Thank you so much, Doug. This has been the Always Be Cool podcast. Bobby Kerr, Darren Copeland. Thanks, everyone. Find us where you find all playlists and all, uh, excuse me, all podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and Google at Always Be Cool podcast on Spot on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Hey, thanks, Guys, Doug. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank Take you. care. If you are hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, Darren and Bobby thank you from the bottom of their hearts.
They hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please leave them a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Please share this episode with others who may be interested in our community. Also, feel free to let DC and BK know which business or community leaders you'd like to see covered in future episodes. Get in touch in the comments or on social media. See you next time for a new episode. And remember, always be cool. This podcast is powered by Summit Lending. NMLS number 185081. Equal housing lender.